Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Bradley Gerald, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? Yeah, very good, thank you. Good. What have we got this week? Busy week? Very busy one, and this week that we're starting to work on now is very busy already too. So that's a lot of results. A lot of results. But some interesting news as well. Absolutely. So what are we, what are we going to talk about today? Well, um, I guess we'll start off on the seven-day spread as we kind of normally do. An interesting piece, I think, um, is the chart of the week, actually, um, which looks at the profitability of UK PLC as a whole. So the, there's a profit watch report from the, the Share Centre. Okay, and uh, bigger stories, we've got something you've written on Braille. Yep, written on Braille, which, we'll, yeah, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. And um, yeah, Burberry as well is in the news uh, section after having an interesting set of results yesterday. Yes, indeed, Burberry. Never a company I've been a big fan of but uh well as a magazine we are because harriet who covers it has it on a buy so mm-hmm. well like i say i often defer these judgments to my staff anyway uh, we're also joined by mark robinson how you doing mark very well thank you john so yeah you've been uh, coordinating the cover feature this week which is our brexit special i've uh, contributed to it but we've also had simon thompson chris dillo philip ryland and young Megan Boxall as well. Yeah, you know, lots, lots to, uh, to say about that. I don't think we'll get through much of it on this podcast. Well, but, uh, no, and I mean, it obviously it isn't a, a comprehensive review of the subject. That would be impossible within the uh, confines of the magazine. But I think it would be impossible within the confines of life as we know it. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. But, but we'll but try our best. We'll we our we best. did receive a, a number of communiques from readers as well, um, you know, requesting uh, an IC view on this. Yeah, yeah. And while we've uh, attempted to be as neutral as possible, um, we have come to... Politically neutral. Politically neutral. Um, There are some uh, interesting uh, takes on the economic implications. That's what we want. Okay, right, Bradley. Let's go back to the news. Let's start with seven days. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, um, data from the Share Centre that produces part of their Profit Watch UK report, it just kind of shows um, that basically uh, the 350 largest listed companies um, saw revenues drop 15.1% among those that reported between January and March. And I guess the the reason I thought it was interesting is because it it maybe points to the fact that maybe the UK market might start to become a bit more like the US one. The US one in the past year, maybe two years, has been driven quite a lot by share buybacks that sort of thing kind mm-hmm. of, in a way kind of um massaging i suppose the eps growth and you have to start to wonder now whether we're going to start seeing the same thing in the uk so just thought the figure was interesting and it might be um interesting sort of down the line if we start seeing more companies buy back shares and that sort of thing which we ask you know i can't think of a few instances in the recent weeks where companies have started doing that so yeah i mean i guess the reason for the headline Turnover fall is largely down to the poor performance of commodity markets. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the the UK market is obviously heavily skewed by that, and these these numbers are, as the share centre you know acknowledges, heavily skewed by that as well. So, outside of um, the commodities and banking sectors, actually the performance is is not too bad. As you've got some good performance from sectors like building materials, construction companies, retailers, not so much the supermarkets within that, but um, media and support services as well. So, yes, there is a big skew. And actually, an interesting point that um, Halal Mia uh, made, who's um, from the Share Centre, was that obviously in the past kind of year, if you've been investing in passive stocks, that maybe has been a very sort of harsh trade potentially because of the the bias towards commodities and banking and finance. So their their view was, and it maybe is always this, but that at the moment it's very particularly 
at the moment a stock pickers kind of market rather than an index one yeah i mean we, you know we we obviously cover passives we cover etfs we cover tracker funds you know and i they definitely serve a purpose There's, you can definitely do stuff with them but i don't i think the, the idea that they're a panacea fire and forget is not necessarily the case always um no, yeah. so you're seeing at the moment perhaps with well there's a, a school of thought which is just that emerging markets have uh, bottomed out and are beginning to turn at the moment and mm. that, you know obviously provides um etfs and uh, structured products provide a way of uh, investing in those for limited risk absolutely absolutely interesting stuff okay brady what else we've got in seven days an interesting move by Warren Buffett, I suppose. You know, his 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 investments are always watched very keenly, mm. and he's actually invested in Apple. It was revealed. He doesn't like tech either, does he? I mean, this is a big no. He's of it, he's got a major tech holding in IBM, um, but beyond IBM's that, he's. Is. Old school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's still a tech company, though. Yeah. I think it was pretty much it's an- old school. Pretty much analog when he invested in. <laughs> Maybe green screens and stuff. And it's interesting as well because obviously um, hedge fund manager Carl Icahn has sold out recently, so it- it's a development in perhaps. Well, some maybe view it you know, Warren Buffett's entry into the stock as maybe this is a turning point for the company because obviously Mr. Buffett's very well known for being a value investor. Um, I don't know. For me personally, I think it's a bit early to call apple x growth i think if we're sort of sat here or anyone is sat here in 20 years time discussing apple i think it will probably have grown and developed and entered into some sort of major markets that maybe we can't sort of see properly now but well we have talked about them before uh, we know we suspect no who knows but but apple is alleged to be working on things like driverless cars and, yeah you know move, moving outside of its its kind of comms devices yeah uh, and it won't space. be the only one i mean google and everything is, is working on those sorts of things as well and you know you've got different types of automobiles from tesla that sort of thing so it's not like it's going to be an easy ride for them if they, if they do go into that sort of thing but i think they will do the chances of success given the size of the company is probably larger than maybe other players so um uh, yeah it's an interesting move by warren buffett i mean i, I don't I think people will obviously be watching it the stock did rise on the back of the news that he had invested so. i think the shares look cheap I really do think the shares are... Listen, I'm not a big Apple fan. I, I lost my, my iPhone. That's uh, not Apple's fault. That's <laughs> fine. So, so damn you, Apple. How did, how did, um, but how did, no, no, no. I, I lost my iPhone. Um, but I haven't bought a new one. I went, to, I went over to Microsoft. I went to the Lumia platform. I think it's, it's quite nice, actually. I know, that said, my kids, who I also bought Lumias a while back, are always on my back because they want iPhones. Mm. So, you know, this is, this is, it's not going away. No. I, th- I think I think the shares are too cheap. Yeah, well, and I think I think Buffett would agree. Yeah, well, I think he probably would. <laughs> there's, there's obviously the the separate issue as well as the uh, the sheer scale of uh, shareholders' capital that's parked offshore as well, and doing nothing in the process. Mm, that's the same for a lot of American tech mm. companies with a lot of cash in uh, in overseas jurisdictions. But no, no, interesting. Um, and we we've been fans of this stock for a while. We, you know, it's one of the rare overseas tips that we we've given. I, in fact, it was me that wrote it many years ago. Did quite well. And we've tipped it again. Yeah, it's too cheap. It's too cheap. And we would stick by that. Yep. And I think, as we said, the, the famed investor would obviously agree with you at the moment. Thank you, Warren, for that uh, vote of confidence in the IC's uh, stock picking strategies. <laughs> uh, sorry, right. Let's move on. Bradley, what else we got? I guess just, just to curse, you mentioned, obviously, the Queen's speech was yesterday. In that was mentioned a pensions bill. Details are light, but I think this is something that um, you'll probably hear us talking about, read us writing about a bit more Um as sort of um, meat is added to the, the bones of this. But initial 
reaction from some people, um, or particularly Royal London anyway, they released a bit of a snap kind of press release in response to it. It was a bit, they weren't that sort of bullish, let's say, about it, because their view is that this pensions bill is going to be quite sort of narrowly focused and not perhaps address the much larger scale problem of the fact that generally people in the UK are just not saving as much into their pensions as they need to. I think it's Tizer, which is like a pensions organisation, constantly saying that by 2035, I think it is, we'll have a generation that's going to retire worse off than the one before, which hasn't happened for a very long time. Mm. So, yeah, I think we'll be seeing more on the pensions bill. Indeed. In fact, just before we came in here, I, I was uh, flicking through the FT and I, I saw uh, the FT website, that's how I flick through it these days, uh, a story uh, talking about Andy Haldane, who's chief economist at the Bank of England, who was saying that despite being moderately financially illiterate, and that is modesty in its, uh, yeah, it is, in it? its uh, largest form, um, he really didn't understand pensions. Which is remarkable. I mean, if he is struggling, then how on earth are the average man and woman on the street able to comprehend this so yeah. you know yeah it's a subject that we let's not get into now but the pensions bill will probably give us a, a very sort of uh, specific focus on how the government hopes to improve the situation mm, well there have been a number of pension reforms in recent years I mean, my, my view would be that they were a little bit hastily pushed through but there you go i'm sure leonora waters and her team will be looking at it closely of as course well. of course they will of course they will. Okay, I mean, let's let's move to some of the biggest stories of the week. Uh, let's talk Burberry. Yep. So as we uh, mentioned uh, at the start of the podcast, it had um, kind of some uh, some interesting results yesterday, and these kind of include basically moves to try and uh, I think uh, as Harriet puts it, which is quite quite good, really, is that they kind of have acknowledged they've got a, a bit of a problem and they need to really address this. Um, and what is this problem? Well, part of the problem is that their chief executive, Christopher Bailey, is also their chief creative officer. And historically in fashion brands, so Harriet tells me, that the creative and the business parts are often kept very separate. That's been going on for a few years now, but there are some, some rumours flying around that the company might well need to hiring some help to make sure that it's going to actually reach its growth goals. Um, yeah, so, so where would this help be? In the creative department or, well, it, the, or the commercial department? Well, it's a big question and the, the company wasn't really answering this. And actually, Mr. Bailey wasn't on the press call. He did the analyst one. So the chief financial officer, Carol Fairweather, wouldn't really confirm or deny anything other than to say they're looking for new recruits with more specific skills across the organisation in it's, quotation marks. It's extremely helpful. Yes, exactly. I mean, Christopher Bailey is generally credited with being the guy that turned Burberry around from from being, you know, a much derided brand popular with... Uh, on the Essex Marshes. On the Essex Marshes, where I come from, incidentally, um, to something that's become very very much a high fashion statement. Exactly. And I don't, uh, I don't think anyone really take that away from him absolutely either. Absolutely not. Absolutely I think not. it's just getting to the point now whereby there are things that need to be, you know, for a company to keep growing is a very demanding thing. Yeah. But the question would be, you know, having, you know, had the creative credos to turn this thing around that essentially got him his promotion to chief exec yeah which is to my mind an entirely different discipline yeah exactly and it it is unusual so uh, whether we'll see a reversal of this who knows i think a reversal probably is unlikely Mm. i think what we're probably likely to see if this is going to happen um a sort of like a i don't know a they'll give them some sort of impressive title, which effectively means they're kind of in charge of probably the creative side, but with, you know, the oversight still held by Mr. Bailey. Oh God, that's my ha- guess. It sounds messy. Yeah, that that's, sound messy. That's, a, that's a complete guess. But beyond yeah. that, anyway, the actual actual sort of fundamental things the company is doing, it wants to claw back annual savings of £100 million by 2019 through a cost-cutting exercise. Um, and it's also capped capital expenditure at £150 million. Cost-cutting? So, 
Yeah. See, Burberry and the words cost cutting don't necessarily go hand in hand. It's, uh... it's cutting its cloth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there are there are sort of more fundamental things it is doing like those two things as well. So it'll be interesting. Obviously, there's the debate about you know it's it's very well, um, it's got a very good showing sort of globally, and obviously there are concerns about China and that sort of thing as well. But I think um, you know the Asia sales will probably be continue to be fairly strong for Burberry, and I think if they can cut costs and keep the Asian sales pretty stable and growing even in a small fashion, that that will probably sort of help propel the business, and that's obviously partly what. Harriet season. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, it was a growth story based on growth markets. Yeah. You know, those growth markets over the last couple of years in financial terms have had a bit of a torrid time. And as as, uh, as Robbo just said, emerging markets are looking perhaps a bit better than they have done for a while. So Exactly. So maybe it's uh, it's one that essentially just rides that trend. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the management... Can we go buy a passive tracker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Burberry management's confidence obviously is is aligned with what you just said, I suppose, because they've also um, raised the payout ratio if they're dividend to 53%. So that's quite a, mm. quite a bullish number. Chunky, chunky. Let's talk railways, Bradley. So effectively, there are these rules, now bear with me, <laughs> called open access. They've been around for a little while, but they're only used on 1% of passenger journeys in the whole of the UK. We've talked about these before. These allow competitors onto essentially a the, the railway lines uh, that fall within a franchised area. Exactly. So, right. so in this instance, we actually are, there is a live example we're talking about, hence the new spotlight piece. So um, Virgin Trains East Coast, which is basically, um, well, Stagecoach has a 90% stake in, that has um, the franchise the East Coast mainline, but um, a government quango has allowed First Group to run some services on rail within this franchise. So, as a customer, as I say, this is potentially good because it means that you've got um, you know competing companies on the rail system. So, arguably, not definitely, but arguably, you could see fares come down. But the problem is, and from speaking to some analysts, is that the open access system is a bit quirky because. It kind of relies on some sort of well, what Gerald Kerr at Libram calls um, extraordinary, extraordinarily artificial um, things like propping it up. So, um, they open access providers pay lower fees because they don't; they're obviously not on the whole of the franchise. And you might argue, well, that's fair. They're restricted on where they can run kind of fair but also they actually get a percentage of ticket revenues regardless of how many passengers they carry based on the capacity that they're running in the franchise mm. that makes sense. so I do use an example to try and illustrate that a bit more clearly in the in the piece but um, because all ticket revenue is collected by the franchise operator an open access operator if they're running say 10% of the capacity in the franchise they automatically get 10% of the revenue Regardless of how many well, they this carry. More, well, it sounds more complicated than pensions. Well, well, thank, oh, yeah. thank God we've moved away from a system where we were sort of subsidising a public railway network. <laughs> Do I hear irony in your voice? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, there are some instances already where this is working up and down the country, not under this particular scheme. But I was thinking of uh, hold trains in particular. Well, that that, that is the one percent of um, UK rail journeys where open access yeah, does work quite well. Yeah, Hull's a funny place, Rob. I mean, you know, it's where you hail from. Near enough, despite the accent, it also has its own telecom system. Yes, yes, it did. Was that did that morph into? Uh, was it didn't morph into Colt Telecom? King, did it? Kingston, Kingston, Kingston Communications. Telecom. Yeah, yeah. White, own telecom, white telephone boxes, two rugby, own trains, two rugby league teams, two rugby league teams, and a, and a, and a football, football team, team about which, to get back into the Premiership. Oh, exactly. Anyway, let's just uh, sorry, we and William Wilberforce, and Wilberforce. 
Yeah, we're, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> what a place Hull is. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, but so as a as a passenger, it could be a good thing. Although the potential issue is that if if the capacity on lines is miscalculated, what you could see is actually more delays and more cancellations, which obviously passengers won't like. And also, as Martin Brown, an analyst at Shore Capital, said to me, what this might well do. And again, as I said at the start, this is in a few years' time. It's not an, an imminent worry for an investor in a train company. But when the franchise agreements come around for tender again, which is we're looking around to 2020, 2021, um, will the interest be quite so keen from mm. operators if they're worried that you know open access has become far more popular? And they're going to potentially see some of their revenues eroded. Indeed. Uh, trains, I mean, uh, for my, to my mind, not something I would invest in. Um, you know, I, I once heard an analyst say, you know, it, logistics is tough, and if you're going to buy anything, buy buy a firm, buy shares in a firm that moves stuff, and avoid investing in firms that move people. But do we like any of them? Well, yeah, I mean, we're actually quite keen on National Express, which is a buy tip. Yeah, and Stagecoach is actually a sell tip, um, which has actually gone it's well. Gone very well. Yeah, well for us, but not. For yeah, them. exactly. Um, and I think actually first group is recently a tip as well which actually in the center of this story is a good thing because they've just gained access to some track they didn't have before yeah at a cheaper cost um but they're more diversified businesses in in respect of how we look at them from an investment perspective if they were just running trains you'd run a mile yeah you would yeah but they obviously run buses in the uk and they also often run trains and or buses abroad too, various guises of that, just like public ones or um, sort of actual private contracts. Um, there's a whole mixture of what they do overseas. And I guess what this may well do, again in the long term, is drive up the proportion of revenues that these companies derive from abroad. Because if they, because they'll be actively seeking to diversify? Well, potentially. If open access is this... Open access is something that was quoted by the Competition Markets Authority in March as one potential route to improve competition on the railway lines. So if it is a route that does become more commonplace, as an operator in the UK, you're probably going to want to look overseas, Mm. whereby you pay for a franchise, you invest a lot of money bidding for it, you invest a lot of money maintaining it, and then you know actually it's going to be yours rather than chipped away at by competitors. Mm. So... That's what I said. Long term, a lot of mites in there. We don't know, but the fact that this open access agreement has been allowed is interesting. And also, you have a company called Alliance Rail, which is actually part of Arriva Trains UK, and they are an open access operator. Their whole being is about jumping into franchises and providing train services where there is there obviously has to be a gap in the service. They can't replicate things, but it suggests that. Well, there's plenty of gaps in my service. <laughs> Well, it suggests the direction of travel is more open access. So, yeah, long term, it could be a bit of a headache. It's, it's analogous to some of the en- energy markets at the moment as well, because there's some small-scale providers that are entering the market now. But mm. um, it, it's very difficult, given the fact that both of these are regulated, regulated to a, a certain extent. These yeah. markets are a nightmare. Well, they, 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 in fact, they, and they all exist, to my mind, within within the the uh, the backdrop that a lot of the important infrastructure decisions in this country that needed to have been made in the past decade or so have, have not really been made. So, you know, we've got problems with transportation, we've got problems with energy, you know, I mean, it's just a mess. We've got problems mm. with housing, a mess. Yeah. What have the government been doing for the last 10 years? What we need is to go it alone. Because we've proven that well, we exactly. are so brilliant at well, running our own country that we don't need any help from the Europeans. Robert, well, let's, well, let's move on to Brexit. That's a great right. segue. <laughs> right. 
Westminster abrogating responsibility <laughs> and straight into Brexit. Yes. As you know, you received a number of um, communiques from our readership as well. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised that so many people actually wanted a, a, an IC view on it. Uh, of course they do, but they want an investment view. They don't want a political view. They don't want to. They don't want to know how we're going to vote. They want to know what's this going to. How's this going to affect their portfolio? How how it's going to affect their buy to let portfolios? How's it going to affect the economy in general and in the growth rates they can expect the country to achieve? Which which you know does ultimately filter down to many companies. Um, how is it going to affect that? So what have, what have we concluded? We've tried to take a balanced perspective um, yeah exactly i mean and the, uh, half the difficulty was um trying to identify those areas that uh our readership would be most interested in and uh, you know so we've covered areas uh albeit briefly like housing we looked at um guilt markets and the cost of borrowing as i mentioned before um simon thompson has come to the party really interesting uh, piece there he's looking at companies that could do very well in the event of a Brexit uh, vote, looking at the sectors that are likely to perform. Oh, so the companies that, that won't get so badly hit. Yeah, yeah. He, here as well. Yeah, he's covering, he's covering those as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting piece. And uh, Philip Ryland has looked at the uh, uh, likely implications for uh, the financial services sector. I mean, let's, is, let's start with that. Yeah, because that's a big thing. I mean, you know, the 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 city is seen as very important for the UK's prosperity. Yeah, um, it's also seen as something that's most under threat uh, from European regulation. Well, um, a difficulty exists here for the UK, or potential uh, difficulty is that um, you know we we run a surplus in terms of a, the service economy, and we run a, a trade deficit with the EU in terms of manufactured goods. So it would be, um, presumably, it would be more difficult to work out uh, a free trade agreement in the event of a Brexit vote as a result of this. Difficult, uh, but not di- impossible. Well, not impossible. I mean, you know, we've, if we were to exit anyway, we, all trade arrangements, whether it be for the manufacturing sector or the service sector, would have to abide by WTO um, strictures. So um, there's a framework in place, uh, and plus there's always the two-year period where we'll get to renegotiate exactly what our uh, relationship to the remaining EU members would be in the event of a Brexit. Oh, indeed, and I, I actually read an interesting piece about good friends over at CCM. Yeah, um, that, you know, and they were, you know, the guy that wrote for that, I can't remember who it was now, but he was suggesting, you know, the, the, all of the kind of negative prognosis of Brexit have been based on the worst case scenario where we literally, you know, we say, right, bye bye, thank you very much, and we don't want to trade with any of you. But that's just simply not going to happen. Well, it's not going to happen at all. I mean, you, you've got the. Uh, Economics, well, just the economics will sort of, um, you know, trump any political considerations in this over time. I mean, I'm sorry to digress, but I mean, you know, this is the thing: trade, right? Trade doesn't happen between governments. Trade happens between companies. No, trade, yeah, trade doesn't happen because of governments either. Governments tend to get in the way. Yeah, but you look at this week; you've had the US implemented like a what a 500 percent surcharge on Chinese steel. I know steel is maybe a bad example because of the, the amount that China's producing, but and also, politicians yeah, are actually very, very intrinsic to trade. They, they are be. intrinsic to trade, but, you know, if, if uh, you know, company A in the UK wants to buy widgets from company B in, say, Romania... Yeah, governments don't, you know, don't initiate that. They can get in the way, but... Uh, well, yeah, exactly, get in the way, and that's possibly what could happen. I mean, I, I was talking to Algie Hall about this, and, and he tends to think that the, the European Union, in the event of a, a Brexit vote, would possibly try and make an example of the UK because to become vindictive and and and, and actually put barriers but, up but well, that's because it could be a domino theory i mean it, obviously if if greece looks over mm. the uk out of the market i mean it's the fair, we're one of the largest net contributors to the, the budget as well 
So there's a, a financial perspective that the whole scale of the operation uh, would have to be reduced. Mm. Uh, no bad thing, some people would say. But I'm not a believer in scale. I, I actually think you, you get too big, you become unmanageable. Well, the, the argument uh, for, for those that are um, uh, promoting um, uh, cessation of uh, our existing ties with the EU uh, is, is linked to overreach, the fact that the European Union uh, has become, in essence, a, a political project. Many people thought it was from the beginning. Um, and it's been exacerbated by the fact that um, a single currency has been um, enforced, in, in a sense, on very differing uh, uh, European economies. Um, it's helped... Uh, well, it's, it's ended up in, in a period where we've had artificially low interest rates throughout the, uh, the continent for a decade or more. And, and as a result, we've had these, these terrible debt crises, which we've yet to work through and, and unlikely to work through as well. I mean, you know, we've got a couple of guys uh, who've given a pro and, and, and against uh, case. Yeah. Mates, we've got John Redwood, yep. the MP, who's presenting the case for Brexit. And uh, Malcolm, Bracken. Uh, Malcolm Bracken from uh, from Stockbroker, Remo yeah. Bentley, is present, who is a Eurosceptic, yeah. but is presenting the case against a Brexit. I mean, I think Malcolm's case is he he makes quite a, a strong case for for continuing with the, the status quo at the moment, and it is interesting uh, coming from the fact that he obviously. Um, but I think, but I think that's the point. He's saying. There could be good reasons for the UK exiting the European Union. Uh, we might be able to, to go it alone. But, you know, there are lots of uncertainties out there, you know, geopolitically and economically. Now's not the time to be messing around with this stuff. A, a pro-Brexit case might say, well, if you don't decide now, then you're never going to get the chance to make the decision again. I mean, I do make the point in the introduction as well, I'm sure most of our readers would probably agree, is that the both camps have um, behaved abysmally during the campaign. I would agree so far. with that. And it, it's very difficult for anyone who's trying to come to an informed uh, opinion on this uh, to glean any, glean any sort of... Um, uh, clear views from either side of the camp. And even though you've had, okay, uh, in the Remain camp, you've had uh, organisations like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, HM Treasury. Uh, um, but the, the, the IMF's prognosis was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it was ridiculous. And, well, you know, I'm, I'm undecided. Listen, I'm not coming at this from... Well, so was the, tre from, from the, tre the Treasury was one of the most ludic ludicrously one-sided documents ever. I mean... Honest to goodness, um, when I th when, when you think of the influence that government ministers have had on that, okay, people at HM Treasury will have to do exactly what the uh, politicians tell them to do. Do uh, they? Well, in terms of in, they set the reference, they set the reference for the report on the economic implications, and it's almost like modelling weather. Does the Bank of England have to do what the government tells it to do? The, well, the government, yeah, the Bank of England is uh, nominally independent, but uh, does the IMF have to do what the UK government tells it to do? No, the, the IMF, the IMF, the IMF funding uh, comes to uh, well, it's we, funded we quite heavily fund from yeah, the, the United US, Kingdom. US surely funds. Well, yeah. no, the European Union, the, the US funds the the World Bank. <laughs> Uh, to and it's it's more an adjunct adjunct for uh, U.S. foreign policy for the most part, uh, and this is the really frustrating thing. Uh, this is the really frustrating thing about this campaign. It, it is so important. It is so important, and yet it's it's just it distilled down to propaganda for the most part. We call it Project Fear is what 
you know, yeah. I've often heard said. Yeah, you know, and I think even uh, with those advocating uh, cutting our ties with the European Union as well, uh, it's it's border on hysterical. At well, times. I've heard references to Hitler, and well, there's going to be a war. Yeah, and... well, well, that's right. You know, Boris is, is uh, you know hogged the headlines as 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 per ever, really. Anyway, listen, we don't want to talk about that stuff. We don't want to talk about this. Just, I mean, it's just nonsense. What we want to do is get to the financial nitty gritty. How much worse off are we going to be under each scenario potentially? Well, Do we even know? We, we, we don't know. We don't know. We, I mean, we, we'd be the first to admit it, but I mean, there are some uh, short-term effects which... Which, which are more likely. We're more not. likely, and Philip Ryland uh, talks about this, uh, the effects on on the city as well. But then again, be, beyond the short or medium term, you know, he's he's none the wiser, and why, why so, would he be? So we could have some banks leaving. Because of the way that the EU rules are set up? We could do. And as I said before, we, we might have a bit more difficulty um, putting together a, a free trade agreement with the EU because of our surplus in, in the service sector. However, we, we'd still be trading under um, you know internationally recognised rules. So I mean, Yeah, I mean, this is this thing. So, so MIFID... MIFID two, yeah, EU regulation, yeah, yeah. which you know, UK banks are currently working to comply towards, on the, in the same way that e, EU banks will have to do the same. And now I looked at this statement; really struck me as quite interesting. You know, UK-based financial services firms outside of the EU would have to demonstrate that their uh, supervisor regime was broadly the same as the as the EU. Yeah, which it will be. Yeah, of course it will be. Of course it will be. I mean, you'd, you'd have to get uh, subsidiaries of banks, say, opening up in foreign subs- local. But I'm sure they will have subsidiaries anyway. Well, this is true. They do. But I mean, if you, if you didn't, I mean, Chris also uh, makes the point, again, a short-term point about borrowing costs as well, that it could push up prices for, for gilts in, in the short term because obviously... Uh, people would be inclined to go into uh, rush into safer assets. But we've but, been we've been there many times over the past few years without any help from from a referendum. Yeah, this is true. And th- th- there's another point worth making as well is that we we've signed thousands of unilateral trade agreements or agreements linked to trade and other areas of uh, public administration. Hundreds of countries throughout the world. I mean that isn't going to. We keep on doing that as a member of the European Union, but we do it if we were if we were separate as well. Okay, one big area that uh, that, that certainly the IMF uses as a as a, a stick to beat us and in submission with was the the idea that property prices might fall. This is terrifying to the UK because we are obsessed with property. Uh, but Jonas Crossan spent a bit of time looking at this. Uh, both both in uh, the retail residential property sense and the commercial property sense, and again. Not massively perturbed either way. No, it doesn't seem so. I mean, he he doesn't come down on one side or the other. Um, uh, but but I think um, you know that what what are the levers driving uh, the UK property market? Has it anything to do with our uh, membership of the European Union, or are there uh, sort of larger? global effects at play well certainly residential property you know there is this idea that uh, london property prices have been pushed much higher through the influx of foreign capital um some of that capital might have come from europe as it turns out looking at the numbers the bulk of it doesn't um that's had a knock-on effect throughout the country and there's just a failure to build new homes as well right, building homes nothing to do with europe i don't think no that's uh, that's a, no, it's a structural a, problem for the uk local uh, planning planning problem that we have yeah uh, as i said housing policy we ain't done a great job with that yeah um commercial property i mean that's surely down to the strength of the economy um yeah indeed and uh, again it's very difficult to come to a uh, an absolute conclusion on this because we just don't know the outcomes. We 
certainly not beyond the short term. Yeah. I mean, one of the areas I, I found particularly interesting, um, being a student myself, uh, was the, the uh, potential threats of research funding. Because uh, we did quite well out of this. This is one of the areas we definitely are not a net contributor to the EU. Yeah, it's a cracking little piece in here by Megan Boxall, one of our uh, newer writers as well. And, and she does make um, uh, quite a, a strong case for uh, that, that whole argument about funding. But again, when you look at it, and, and bearing in mind that one, the UK is one of the largest net contributors, we do do quite well out of funding and science, as we probably should do. But you look at the overall context, context it's, it's a relatively minuscule budget compared to, to other areas of public policy in the European Union. So what you're potentially arguing is the money we save from not being you know, members of the EU, we can essentially pump into our own R&D. Well, exactly. I mean, you get the same argument coming from farmers as well. And you can understand why farmers are voting uh, to, to remain in because they just they don't want un- uncertainty and there's no there's no explicit guarantees from anyone heading uh, the the out camp if you like that farmers um uh, will enjoy the same degree of subsidy as, as they do now in the European Union. I think this is the remarkable thing. I mean, you said, though, there's, there's been so much rhetoric in both campaigns. I mean, as Mark's saying, nobody, surely uh, a, a strong goal to score would be to say, yes, if we leave the EU, we'll have this much money to spend on this. I've not heard anybody say that. No, surely that would be a factual thing. There must be, there's a factual number, surely, we spend on the EU. Nine billion. Well, where would that factual number go? Why, I, why won't somebody tell us? I think they have been telling us, but I think I think uh, I think so many other that, people have been trying to, to to you know basically say, well, it's not quite that, or you could look at it this way. I haven't had like Jeremy Hunt was... saying, oh, well, I'm going to spend it on the NHS. Doctors, don't worry, don't strike or anything. I mean, there's been nothing like that at all. And I think I don't know. It, yeah. It, it, as we say, the campaign's been a mess. It's it just <laughs> descended into farce. I'm sure most people feel much the same way. In fact, most people I talk to. Uh, thoroughly frustrated with the whole process because they want to vote but based upon yeah facts yeah or as close to facts as you can get in something like this which is actually looking into the future well yeah i mean it is crystal ball stuff for the, for the most part but it does that doesn't mean to say that you can't have that you can't have a genuine cognitive response to it and it seems to be totally driven by emotion in many cases mm. and as i say i'm editorial Worst thing you can do in investing, worst thing you possibly do in the case of a Brexit referendum as well. Yeah, well, this is it. I think I'll be, uh, I think I'm... Uh, we, we, we shouldn't, uh, let's remain agnostic. I'm going to remain agnostic. I am still, I'll be agnostic until the final minute. I will probably still have not made my mind up when I walk into that polling booth and then spoil the ballot paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so, Can yeah. Join NAFTA. I think it's a really interesting... Uh, piece Robert I think uh, well done for putting it together you pulled some great stuff together from the team it's a long piece yeah, it's it a surprisingly easy read because it is so interesting and so important well, it is. I know there's, um, some, there's some really good stuff in there as well I mean the writers have done so well and as I say with uh, Simon at the end you know well, if, you, if you're confused by the whole thing why not try and exploit it yes Yes, you can do that, and Simon Simon presents some ways that you can actually just play the vote. If you you know if you have a trading bent, then you can yeah. uh, you can you can trade. Yeah, there's there's potential ways to profit from uh, Brexit or Remain. Yeah, well, you know, he's, Simon's laying on the beach in uh, in uh, Skiathos at the moment, I think. So he's probably profiting at this as we speak. Indeed, and uh, you know, we, we we spoke earlier, Robo, about services. Uh, that subject you're sex focused this week as well. The invisible exports uh, that yeah. we, we do so well in this country. I mean, 
we don't need to talk about it now. There's a video, I assume, on the... Uh... It, there is. I, I spoke to Harriet Russell this morning as well, but it's interesting. It, it sort of um, it dovetails with, with the whole Brexit issue as well, and it's a large subject, and I've only mentioned a, a few little companies in there as well, but it's worth having a look at. So hang on, well, speaking of Harriet, producer's just speaking to me in the he- in the headphones. Harriet Russell has won the uh, the Wincott Award for uh, Young Journalist of the Year. Well, fantastic. That and, is amazing. Well, indeed, and uh, it's a just reward as well. She produced wow. some fantastic stuff over the, over the last year, and beyond of course so well done to Harriet yeah, yeah well done amazing very well deserved and uh, yeah destined for great things uh, let's talk about some results before we sign off we're going to keep this brief so I'm going to say Bradley you've written a lot this week um, I've written a few your, what's, your, what's your, your highlight well I guess um, a bit of a, on a bit of a theme there have been a, quite a few pub groups reporting recently okay. there's been another one today actually Young's reported today which I'm just going to focus on when I return to my desk um, but we had um, Enterprise Inns which is obviously a very big company um, it's going to potentially be a bit hit by new government laws which will allow tied um, publicans to cut the beer time and yep. sort of uh, pay the parent only like rent only but it's managing that well it's changing its agreement with publicans to kind of entice them to stay so that's kind of interesting we're on hold there at the moment because it is a bit of a turnaround story well, it's uh, amazing that it's still going after the, uh, the Potent- tribulations that it's been through well potentially so yeah um, and Marston's as well was the other pub group which reported um, we're a bit more bullish on this one we've got it on a buy um, food sales particularly driving that there they've really sort of um, focused on what they're offering food wise there sort of special you know sort of open kitchens to sort of entice people in and um, yeah kind of heading for that premium kind of market and actually Marston's is a very big brewer as well and they bought Thwaites recently and uh, that's really helped their brewing division too Okay, Bradley, thank you. And Robert, you've been so busy with the feature, you haven't actually uh, covered an enormous amount of results this week. I'll be having a word with you about that later. What else we've got in results? I mean, it's been quite a busy week, isn't it, Bradley? A lot of, lot of property, British Land Securities, both looking quite good. Talk, talk. Been having a horror lately. Yeah, the old um, sort of uh, breach of security. Yeah, there. yeah, never a good thing. Vodafone, actually doing a bit better than it has for a while. Some more in your sector, actually, Premier Foods, Green Core. So, yeah, I mean, uh, an interesting week. Oh, patisserie, we talk, we've talked about that quite a lot recently, haven't we? Um, so, yes, uh, results picking up. We're going to get busy again next week as well, uh, I assume. Absolutely. I can't wait. I can't wait. And, OK, probably uh, run out of time. No? Reached the end of our slot. So, yeah, having put Europe to rights and, and uh, the national railways to rights, it's probably time to wrap up. All the usual stuff in the magazine. We have uh, a useful stock screen from Algae Hall. Uh, cyclical recovery players, which he calls his late bloomers. These are the companies that uh, that perform better later on in the cycle. It's been good. It didn't have a great year last year, although it still beat the market. And uh, still over over the last few years has uh, significantly outperformed, as Algae stock screens often do. Um, lots more in the comments section. Lots more in the the news section that we haven't covered lots of company specific news there we've got the next part of our 50 objects of investing talking about hostile takeovers uh, and the objects in question are a bottle of johnny walker red label and a packet of embassy yeah sounds good to me exactly and l- even more on the brexit theme in the personal finance and fund section which they will no doubt talk about on their podcast when they record it tomorrow so thank you very much thank you bradley thank you robbo and once again well done to harriet russell yeah uh very well deserved award there uh pick up the magazine you can't miss it brexit cutting through the noise four pound seventy in all good news agents and we will catch up again next week goodbye 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.